few weeks ago, I read a short biography of a lesser-known English pastor, R.C. Chapman, who lived from 1803 to 1902. And he ministered in the sleepy town of Barnstaple in England and never rose to global fame. And chances are you've never heard of him, but he happily served to make Christ's name known. And he had a powerful witness of Christ-like love, such that Charles Spurgeon said of Chapman, he is, quote, he is the saintliest man I ever knew. And that says a lot. There were many memorable moments in Chapman's biography, but one that stood out was his evangelistic zeal. He was known for just sharing the gospel with anyone who would listen to him. And though the nations would never know his name, he was very happy to make Christ's name known to the nations. And in particular, Chapman had a heart to reach Spain. And that's what piqued my attention rereading the biography, because here we are now supporting missionaries in Spain. And living in the 1800s, Spain was essentially an unreached nation. It was fiercely Catholic, and because of the Spanish Inquisition, the Protestant Reformation never entered. It was illegal to publicly preach the gospel of grace, and foreign missionaries were not allowed. But still, Chapman desired to reach Spain, and over the years, he taught himself fluent Spanish, and he arranged for a first short-term mission trip in 1838. And since public preaching was a no-go, his plan was just to travel around and basically share the gospel with as many individuals as he could. And so that's what he did. He found very little fruit on his first visit. The soil was hard-packed, but he was undeterred in his zeal. And upon returning home, he used his pulpit to stir the hearts of his people that others might be moved to go to Spain. Progress was made in the 1840s as they started distributing Bibles there. Chapman would make two more missionary journeys to Spain, the last one being in 1871 at the age of 68. He spent 10 months traveling around sharing the gospel. This was total frontline, boots-on-the-ground missionary work. And Chapman did not really live to see much of the fruit of his labor, but he knew he was the first worker, the guy to show up, scatter the seed. Someone else would come along and water it, and then someone else would come along and reap the harvest. Still, he just had a heart for the nations, and, and he was trying to be faithful to his master to spread his name. And today, Spain is still overall spiritually dark, but there are thousands of faithful believers. And I would not be surprised at all if, if many of them could trace their spiritual lineage back to the work and influence of Chapman. <clears throat> Chapman's example shows the value of, of all evangelistic work. You may not see much fruit among your friends and loved ones. You just continue to be faithful to share the gospel with them and scatter that seed. You don't know. That might not germinate till after you're gone. You be faithful and trust God for the results. In addition, Chapman's example shows, I think, the value of short-term mission trips. Not everyone is called to live overseas to reach the nations, but you can still make quite a splash with just a short-term focused trip. A great work can be done in, in little time. And that's actually something we see reflected in our passage of Scripture this morning, as here we have Jesus sending out his disciples on the very first short-term church mission trip ever. And from this, we really see the value of short-term focused evangelistic work, and we learn much about the church's ongoing mission for today. All this and more comes from Matthew 10, our passage this morning. Turn in your Bibles 
to Matthew chapter 10. Last week, if you were here, we were formally introduced to Christ's 12 special disciples that he called to himself. Mark 3.14 summarizes that purpose in calling them well. It says Jesus appointed 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach. He called these 12 guys that they might first follow him around for three years and learn from him, his teaching, his example. But that was a means to an end as he was going to thereafter, send them out, send them out to preach and bring his gospel to the nations. And here in Matthew 10, we are witnessing the beginning of their transition from disciples to apostles. And Matthew 10 mostly records Christ's commission to these 12 as they're being sent out for the first time, their first ever mission, short term, to reach the lost. For this first trip, They were given a very narrow scope. This was partly outreach, partly training. You could argue their first trip was just as much for the training of the 12 as it was for reaching the lost. But these disciples, they've just been standing by so far watching Jesus do all the work, all the teaching, all the preaching, all the healing. But now it's time for them to get their hands dirty and engage in the Lord's ministry. And certainly after the resurrection, Their mission will not be short-term, but long-term. It won't be narrow in scope, but global. But you have to start somewhere, and here is where the Lord wanted the 12 to start. Now, our passage for this morning starts in verse 5. Before sending the 12 out, Jesus commissions them. Verse 5 says, these 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them. Again, the goal is to send them out, that verb for sent out. Is apostello. The noun form of that word is just the word for apostle. They are they're going to become the sent ones, the apostles. But before they're sent, they could use a little more equipping by way of instruction. So verse 5 says, Jesus only sent them out after instructing them. This instruction, don't picture a classroom lecture per se. This word for instruction speaks of a, a formal charge or command. So picture a military commander giving like battle time instructions to his troops. Like men that these doors are about to open and they're going to storm that beach. So here's what to do. Here's what not to do. Here's where to go. Here's what to expect. That's pretty much what Jesus is doing with the 12 in this moment. And it is this instruction that Matthew records for us. It takes up the whole chapter. But we begin today with Simply verses 5 through 15, Christ's opening salvo of instructions. Now, these verses are historic. In other words, the beginning of Christ's commission most definitely applies to the 12 in a unique, specific, historical situation. This is Jesus speaking directly to the 12 about their first mission to only reach Israel. Now, that first mission trip, it came, it went, it's over. The specific historical terms no longer apply. We'll see that. We'll make sense of that. But it's still hugely valuable to understand this first mission trip in a historic sense. I mean, it is inspired in Scripture for our edification. We learn a lot about the development of the apostles. But in addition, the way in which Jesus prepares the twelve to go out on this first trip still equips us with with numerous principles relevant to disciples today 
and still very much useful for the church's ongoing mission, which is a bit different, but we'll see how they relate. So our plan for our time is to walk through Matthew 5 through 15, reading as we go. And we're going to trace the first seven marching orders of Christ's commission to the twelve. The first seven marching orders of Christ's commission to the twelve. Again, as we go, we'll, we'll try and make sense of that historic first mission while also drawing out the ongoing application of Christ's instruction to the church today. And there's a lot to cover, so we better begin. The first order, where to go? First, where to go? Verse 5, it says, These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, and he says this, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. First order business. First order, he tells them where to go. So where are they going to be sent? What what distant land will they reach on this first ever trip? Well, it turns out the first mission trip is not that exotic. They're told not to go to the nations, but to stay put, to go to Israel. You see, first he tells them where not to go. Do not go in the way. Literally, it says the road of the Gentiles. Right now, they're in in Galilee in the north. And so Jesus is basically telling them, don't go north, further north. That would take them to Tyre and Sidon, Gentile-dominated cities. You can't go east. That would take them into the Decapolis, the ten cities. Again, Gentile territory. They also can't go south. That would take them to Samaria, Samaritan territory was sandwiched between Galilee in the north, Jerusalem in the south. And Samaritans were regarded as like half-breed Jews who had had compromised their ethnicity and religion with the Gentiles. And so the Jews despised them. Jesus affirms, don't even enter their cities. So they can't go north, can't go south, can't go east. The west is the Mediterranean. So you put it all together, what is Jesus telling them? He's saying, just stay put, stay in Galilee. This, this first mission is expressly not a mission to the nations. To the contrary, it is only for, he says, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And that phrase is simply how the Old Testament prophets referred to the wayward nation as a whole. His first mission was to reach them and only them. And that part is clear. Now, you're probably wondering why. I thought Jesus was the savior of the world. I thought we're supposed to reach all the nations. So why is he restricting his disciples to reach Israel only? That's, that's a critical question. It doesn't just come up here. There is this, this Jewish priority to the gospel you find all throughout the New Testament. Later in Matthew 15, Jesus says he came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel And they never wonder why in in Romans, Paul's thesis in his letter to the Romans, he speaks of this Jewish priority. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. You ever wonder, like, why does it say to the Jew first? Now, I have to level with you. I started to put together a, a biblical, in my mind, satisfactory answer to this question, and It very quickly overtook like half the sermon. And it's a big subject, the place of Israel and the Gentiles in the people of God. But we already have a big passage in our hands full to get through it all. So we can't get that sidetracked. 
And so I think we'll, we'll most likely come back next week and give a, a more satisfying attention to this big question. What, what's with this Jewish priority? Why Israel only? How do we make sense of this? We're going to save it for next week. For now, you don't necessarily know why, but first, just understand that this first mission was to Israel only. There is a reason. You'll find out next time. But their first order is where to go, and he says Israel only. Now we got to move on. The second order is what to say. What to say. Verse 7, he says, And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His first order was all about just going. Verse 5, do not go the way of the Gentiles. Verse 6, instead go to the lost sheep of Israel. And verse 7, as you go, so you step past the starting line, you're going, now what? What, what do they do? And there are to thereafter preach. He says, as you go, preach. This is not going to be a sightseeing mission. This is a preaching mission. The 12 are sent out as heralds of the king. That's what's behind this command and this word to preach. It comes from the term keruso. It means to publicly proclaim. And it has behind it the ancient herald of a king sent out to deliver news to the kingdom. In the era before TV or even newspaper, like how do you disseminate news and information across your kingdom? This could be good news, like a military victory or the birth of the king's son. It could be warning, like enemies are invading. Either way, to get the word out, the king would dispatch a group of heralds, preachers. And they would just go from town to town and announce the king's message. And as his emissaries, they did not have the liberty to change the king's message. Like, even if it was bad news and the people might take it out on the messengers, they were bound by the king's authority to give only his message. And this situation is is quite parallel to what Jesus is doing with the apostles. He's sending them out to preach. Jesus is the king of this kingdom. He's sending them out to represent him, his message, that's part good news, and part warning. And he wants them to bring it to the people. And the apostles, in turn, had better be found faithful to this message and only speak his words. Now, in this moment, historically, their message was a bit limited. They are to announce that the kingdom of heaven is at hand or near. The exercise of God's rule over his fallen creation was about to take a huge leap forward in the coming of the king. You might recall this is the exact same message John the Baptist preached in Matthew 3. It's the same message Jesus preached in Matthew 4. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's safe to assume the apostles likewise would have preached repentance. Just given this point in redemptive history, the cross hasn't happened, the resurrection hasn't happened, the disciples have little insight into the, the necessity of the atoning death of the Messiah. And so they still can't announce yet the full gospel message that will come. And so for now, it suffices for them to basically carry on John the Baptist's forerunner work. They're continuing to serve as forerunners, making ready the way of the Lord. They're to go to Israel, preach repentance like John, that the hearts of the people might be turned back to God. They're doing a work of realignment, realigning 
the Jews such that when the Messiah comes, they're, they're on the way of the Lord and they, they bump into him. They receive him. After this Messiah dies for their sins, rises from the dead, they will believe in him for eternal life. I'm sure the apostles would expound on this message as much as they could, but this is the gist of it at this time. And to this kingdom proclamation, they were to be faithful. Now, a simple point of a connection and application, you too should be found faithful. All believers are called to share, and we do now have the full gospel message And you had better be faithful to the king's message. And this is doubly true for pastors, for missionaries. You have no right to change the message. It's not up to you to make the message more appealing for the sake of personal gain. It's not up to you to soften the sharp corners of the message, to save your skin so that they won't shoot the messenger. You're bound to speak The whole truth, or the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God. And I pray we all would take to heart what Paul exhorts Timothy in 2 Timothy 1a as he ministers the gospel. He says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. We have a message worth proclaiming. It's even worth suffering for if it means the salvation of some. You trust God for that part, but as for your part, the heralding, be found faithful. Now, a third order. Number three, what to do. Where to go, what to say. Third, what to do. From verse eight. He says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. So next, Jesus tells them what what else to do. In addition to preaching the gospel, they are to carry out a healing ministry. It's actually something we explained in greater detail last week, so we'll be brief here. But what Jesus says in verse 8 is really an elaboration of the summary given back in verse 1. This chapter began in saying Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Jesus is the one who possesses all authority over all things in his person because he's the God-man. But what we find here is that for the first time, he's delegating some of that authority to the 12, his representatives, that they might extend his reach. He's involving them in the work of the ministry because they're eventually going to be the ones to take his gospel to the nations. And we also learned last time that these apostles were meant to be the the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2.20. And because of that, they were given a special authority. This is the the power to work signs and wonders. And that's what verse 8 captures. This just repeats the signs of verse 1 and adds two more. Cast out demons, heal the sick, in addition, raise the dead, and cleanse lepers. You'll notice, though, these are the exact same categories, the four categories of signs Jesus performed in Matthew chapters 8 and 9. We just spent two chapters witnessing Jesus give the signs of his divine authority by doing what? Healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing lepers, casting out demons. Jesus did all that, we found, to demonstrate his authority as having come from God. And now as the apostles do the same thing. If, as they issue the same signs, they're now showing their authority 
as having come from Jesus. You have to remember the purpose of these signs. It's, it's part mercy. These are expressions of the genuine compassion of God to alleviate human suffering. You notice Jesus did not give his disciples like superpowers. They can't fly. They can't become invisible. That's what we would think of, but God's signs had also a purpose. Not only being supernatural, but revealing God's heart for the downtrodden. This is a God who hates evil and has the power to lift its effects. But these signs also served as the credentials of the apostles. When I was a doctor, I remember his old doctor's office lining the hallway were his diplomas and certificates. There were his credentials showing patients he was qualified for medical work. And likewise, these wondrous deeds, they're the credentials of the apostles, proving that they spoke with God and Christ's authority. And so the point is, you better listen to them. You better heed their message because salvation comes from hearing by this gospel message. And so this is why you should listen to them. Now, I think we elaborated in greater detail on the purpose of these signs last week. We'll leave it here for now, therefore. Jesus wanted them to preach and to heal, just like he did. But I do want to turn your attention to the one phrase he adds at the end of verse 8, though, which I think is worthy of its own point. You can say a fourth order, what not to do. What not to do. End of verse 8. He says, freely you received, freely give. Why does he say this? Why does he add this? Freely you received, but received what? What's he talking about? You have to interpret this in the context. The context is obviously verse 8. What did the disciples just receive? They received Christ's power and authority. This is not their own. They did not deserve it. They didn't earn it. It was just freely granted to them by Christ from the good news of the kingdom to the authenticating signs of the kingdom. The apostles received everything they had by the gift of God's grace, free of charge. And so by the same token, they're not to administer the gospel and its power for a charge. They're to bear witness and perform these signs free of charge. That's the point here. Jesus is telling them what not to do as they work, and basically, like, don't charge a fee. Don't charge for these services. This is actually a significant point. They're to offer the gospel and its signs without a cost. They must not charge money for the words of life or its power. Now, you might be thinking, like, you know, come on, Jesus. These guys would never do that. Who would ever think of taking like the gospel message and its power and like turning into a money-making venture? I mean, that, that, that would never happen. He doesn't need to say this. But you laugh because you know it's been happening like since the beginning all throughout church history. Even in Acts chapter 8, the church has just begun. We find this guy named Simon the Magician. And he practiced a type of magic and he astonished the people of Samaria. And they thought he had the power of the gods. But then the apostles roll through, they're preaching the gospel, and they're performing true signs and wonders. The people saw the real power of God. It says they repented, they believed, 
And that says they received the Holy Spirit through the laying on of the apostles' hands, itself being a sign that now the Samaritans are included in the people of God. But Simon, he he's witnesses the power of the apostles. And Acts 8.18 says, you know what he did? He offered them money for it. He said, give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon actually didn't want the Holy Spirit. He wanted the power to give it, to, to do it, to, to work wonders. Why? For him, it was just a means of gaining fame and fortune. He found a better magic. But the apostles saw through this request in Acts 8.20. Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. When you think about it, the apostles could have made a fortune peddling the word of God. Like if, if phonies or magicians or circus performers, if they can make a lot of money through tricks, like how much more could the apostles wielding the real power of God? Like you want me to raise your dead loved one, that'll be a million dollars. The apostles could have easily justified this. I mean, it's for a good cause. It's how they bankroll their ministry. You can see how it works. Like Jesus knew the corrupting temptation of greed. And so he had to warn against this. Freely you have received the gospel and its power. And so freely you have to give it. And this still applies today. The minister of the gospel is worthy of being financially supported by the church. In in verse 10, Jesus will say, the worker is worthy of his support. We'll get to that. But the point is, no minister must seek to use the gospel for financial gain. He must not be driven by money, by greed. And that is still very much true today. Greed has always marked false teachers. From Israel's false shepherds in Ezekiel 34 to the scribes and Pharisees of Christ's own day. As 2 Peter 2.3 warns of false teachers, it says that in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. But to the contrary, that the church elder pastor must be, 1 Timothy 3.3, free from the love of money. He must be, Titus 1.7, not fond of sordid gain. The lesson then is that the gospel must never be put behind a paywall. You never charge money for somebody to hear the gospel. And ministers who, who received all things freely must give freely. I think there's an obvious huge application here that if you see a so-called pastor or leader peddling the gospel for riches and seeking money from the ministry, turn away from him. I'm always amazed how these prosperity preachers thrive. How do people keep sending them money? I do not know. But I think that's because people in turn are so easily amazed. These preachers claim to have God's power, but they charge for it. And they're just getting rich off the gullibility of poor people. They're just like Simon the Magician. They're duping people. You know, it's not wrong for God's people to enjoy some material blessings, but when a preacher has a massive mansion, a Rolls Royce and a private jet, all funded by the donations of his poor people, what more do you need spelled out for you is a false teacher. Turn away from him. Now, I think here, I trust and hope we are very far from being prosperity preachers here, but even still, we like to set up protections against even the temptation to greed. 
So you should know as a rule, any, any opportunity we get to minister the gospel, a wedding, a funeral, a retreat, preaching another church, even counseling, all counseling, we, we will never, ever ask for money. We'll never charge for any service we perform. We must never seen or even be tempted of being preachers for hire. Now that said, for us today and for the 12 being sent out, they still were going to have like practical needs, food, lodging, how, how are they going to live? If they're supposed to minister full time, like what, what do they do? If they, not, if they were not to charge for their services, how would they get by on this mission? Well, this brings us to the next point, a fifth marching order, whom to trust. Whom to trust, verses 9 and 10. He says next, verse 9, Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support. These verses can seem puzzling until you clarify what Jesus is telling them and why. What's he telling them to do? In short, basically saying don't gather provisions for this short-term mission. Key verb in verse 9 is do not acquire. Do not acquire. This word speaks of procuring or purchasing goods, making preparations. You ever gone on a camping trip? Then you know that you or, or, or dad in the family has spent a lot of time, probably too much time, just gathering supplies. It's a lot of time getting everything ready to make sure you don't forget anything. You're, you're fully prepared. Jesus is telling his disciples to pretty much do the opposite. Don't do any preparation. Make no provisions. He says, don't acquire gold, silver, or copper for your money belts. These were the three denominations of coinage they used back then. Basically, like, don't go to the ATM and get money for the trip. Don't acquire a bag for your journey. This usually was a leather bag shepherds would use to put their gear in. You know, every hiker today has a backpack. You need somewhere to put all your stuff, all your supplies. But Jesus says, no bag. You won't need it. He adds, don't even acquire two coats. This actually refers to the, the inner garment they would wear. And it's talking about an additional one. Beyond the one they were wearing, don't get an extra inner garment. They might do this for comfort, for warmth, or for just a change of clothes. But what he's saying is, like, the clothes you're wearing will suffice. The same goes for sandals or a staff. This is where some people have gotten hung up and misinterpreted Christ's instructions as if he's sending the 12 out barefoot on this mission. No, he's not sending them barefoot. The disciples were all currently wearing sandals. I think it's safe to assume. And they all likely had a walking staff. But what Jesus is saying, remember the command is don't acquire, don't procure another one. No extras, no extra inner garment, no extra sandals or a staff. What you have will suffice. It's actually confirmed in Mark's gospel where disciples are seen to be able to take sandals, what they're wearing, and a staff. But here's the point. Jesus, he's just, he's sending them out, like right now, as they are. Whatever they're wearing, whatever they have on them, that's it. That's all they got. Just, you're going to go. Don't go buy stuff. Don't procure anything for this trip. Mark adds, not even bread. Basically, as Jesus is done talking, they better start walking. Like when he's done with these instructions, like off you go, like just go. Now, hearing this, I bet the disciples would have started to worry. Because this sounds kind of rough. Like, what if your sandals wear out? 
That's like the end of your journey. What, what do you do? And if they have no money, what will they eat? Where will they sleep? How are they supposed to accomplish this mission being so ill-equipped? There's really two answers to this question, which, which gets at why Jesus is telling them to acquire nothing. It has to do with whom to trust. And I hope the first answer should be obvious. God. They're to trust God for this mission. Recall in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught, you should not worry about your life. That is what you eat or drink or wear. Matthew 6.25, your heavenly father knows you need all these things. Instead, Matthew 6.33, you just seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. We say to that passage in detail, seeing how it applies. But here for the 12, it's like Jesus is taking the extreme literal application of that and giving it as a test to the 12 that they would trust God. Jesus said to those who worry in the Sermon on the Mount, you of little faith. That's your problem. If you worry, you have little faith. But he needs these 12 to be men of big faith. And so this is a test. Will they trust God to provide for like their ultimate basic needs as they are sent out on his mission. This is undeniable. Like for them, this mission is the will of God. They can be convinced, yes, this is the will of God. And so can they trust God for all the rest? There have been many foolhardy missionaries over the centuries who who don't know how to interpret the Bible. And so they have set out on long-term mission trips with zero preparations, zero provisions based on this verse resulting in usually total failure or death. Remember, this, this is a historic occasion. This is a special testing of the 12 for their first mission. You got to recall, right before Christ's arrest, he gave the disciples pretty much the opposite set of instructions as this verse. Right before Gethsemane, he told his disciples, as their mission was about to become full-time and long-term, he said, it's time to take a money belt, Get a bag, and if you don't have a sword, sell your coat and buy one. He knows, like, they're going to need to be prepared. God is not against planning or provision or prudence. But we can derive the lesson, though, that we too need to learn just to deeply trust God whenever, however, we are tested. Commit yourself to the will of God. Be convinced you're in the will of God. You're living according to the will of God by his word, and then you can just trust him to meet all your needs. He will. That is his promise. Exactly, God, uh, exactly how God will meet those needs varies. In the case of the 12, this was not going to be just manna from heaven feeding them on their mission. Rather, God would providentially use ordinary means to meet their needs, specifically the generosity of other people. That's the other it's the kind of the human side of whom to trust. They need to trust God for this mission and also the hospitality of the saints. Jesus says at the end of verse 10, for the worker is worthy of his support. The word support, just a synonym for, for wages, like a stipend. He does not want them to be paupers or beggars or starving monks. That's not the plan. They, they should be supported. He says they're worthy of being supported. It's just that God has ordained for them to raise up supporters on their mission, generous people who will clothe them and feed them and house them. Oh, your sandals broke? Let me supply you with a new one. 
The 12 must learn to rely on God's providence to provide through the hospitality of others. And this bleeds right into the next marching order. Number six, whom to seek. Whom to seek. Verse 11. He says, in whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay at his house until you leave that city. As the disciples go from town to town in pairs, they are to find out who is worthy. And God will provide for all their needs through such worthy people. Now, the word worthy, it's it's the key term in the remaining verses here through verse 15, used four times. It refers to something that's weighty or valuable. In the New Testament, though, this word gets applied to people. There's some people who are worthy, and the opposite is true. Some people are unworthy. So what makes someone worthy? Well, you ask that someone in the world, they would say like the rich and the powerful. They're worthy. Someone in the church might say, well, no, it's, it's the humble, it's, it's the honest. And that's close, but what makes someone worthy, according to how this word is used in the New Testament, is simply this. It's just accepting the gospel, accepting God's word. God's grace is the ultimate source, but as people hear the gospel, humble themselves, repent, and believe, they are found worthy to receive the gift of life. The flip side is true. As people hear the gospel and are hardened against it in rejection, they are found unworthy of eternal life. As an example, this is how Paul spoke of the Jews in Antioch. As we'll learn a little bit next week, he goes to preach the gospel to a new town. His first order of business is go to the Jews, he goes to the synagogue, preaches the gospel. They reject in a hardened way, they reject. And so Paul says this, Acts 13, 46. He says, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. And since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So look, here's the picture in, in our text. We've got the 12. They're being sent out in pairs. They're going to go to like village to village, town to town in Galilee. There's 200 villages and towns in Galilee. They're just popping around. When they show up, they're probably going to the city gates, maybe the synagogue. And then they would apply verse 7. They would preach the message of the kingdom. And then they would perform verse 8. They would issue the signs of God's mercy and authority. This is how they would inquire who was worthy. The word inquire itself means to test, to examine, to, to discover something. And look, by the positive response to their message and works, they would discover who was worthy. They would find out who was longing for the consolation of Israel. And thereafter, Jesus says, you're going to stay at that person's house. Jesus is leaning into the expectation of hospitality that existed in that culture. There's no hotels. Travelers relied on the hospitality of strangers. In addition, the worthy people... Upon receiving the good news, Jesus knew they would prove to be more than happy to take care of the material needs of these messages of the gospel, which they so cherished. They would readily provide lodging for these apostles of the Lord, as well as whatever else they needed. 
And so Jesus then instructs the disciples to stay at this person's house until they leave that city. What this means is basically like don't shop around for better accommodations. You find other worthy people like that guy has a better house. Maybe I should kind of move over there while I'm in this town. But no, Jesus is saying the first person that shows you hospitality, that that's your home. That's your home base until you leave that city and just to be content with whatever you're provided. Just, just be thankful for the hospitality of the saints. It is exactly like Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 8 to Timothy the minister. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. And that's basically what Jesus was telling the apostles. Just be content with whatever you get. There's a story about R.C. Chapman where he and a friend were walking the streets of Sevilla in Spain. They're evangelizing and they got totally lost. They had no idea how to get back to their hotel. They did not know where in the city they were. They're completely lost. Then they found a shop with an English name. And so entering, Chapman asked the worker, like, are, are you English? The man replied, said, yes, that I am. And right glad I am to hear my mother tongue. This is the first time since I came into this country anyone has asked me such a question or cared anything about me. And so Chapman then pulled out his Bible and started discussing the scriptures with this man, sharing the gospel, answering questions. The man was standing there intensely engaged, listening. And at the end, they prayed together. After that, Chapman said, we are strangers in the city. Will you kindly direct us to our hotel? And the man replied, direct you, sir. I'll go with you every step of the way. This man was so impacted by Chapman's witness and his gospel message that he was willing to serve him immediately and fully, like right then and there. That's a picture of one found worthy. Years later, Chapman's friend, his traveling companion, returned to Sevilla and found that worker and found that through that interaction with Chapman, he had become a Christian and was preaching the gospel. But I think there's an important application here and for ministers of the gospel, 1 Timothy 5 affirms the worker is worthy of his wages. It says elders who work hard at teaching and preaching are worthy of remuneration. Paul adds in 1 Corinthians 9.14 that the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Yet ministers are not in control of such provision. They will likewise be tested to trust God to provide through his people for their needs. And they must learn to be content, whether they have much or little, just like Paul modeled in Philippians 4. On the flip side, though, I think let every church today be found worthy as well, which is shown in meeting the needs of messengers of the gospel. From pastors to missionaries, you should see yourselves as God's chosen means of providing for his workers. That, that is your role. Giving to meet the needs of gospel workers should delight you. That, that's how you have a significant hand in their gospel work. It's like Paul told the church in 1 Thessalonians 5.12. He said, Appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. So let, let all in the church today be found worthy like this. Where they're practicing generosity toward gospel workers. Now, I have to say that I'm not saying this in a self-serving manner as if to send a signal to this church. I am most definitely not. This church, Berean, has been proven doubly worthy 
You're not just Bereans. You're like the Thessalonians. And we can attest you, you outpace other churches in, in the kindness, the love, the generosity you show your pastors and your missionaries. I just say praise God and thank you for being found worthy, faithful, and generous with us. We are content and thankful. But not all are worthy. And as a last opening order, number seven, whom to reject? Whom to reject? Verse 12. It says, as you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Look, so far everything Jesus said has been positive, challenging, but positive. Like this mission is going to stretch the faith of the disciples. But what are they supposed to do? They're going out to fellow Jews in their backyard. They're announcing good news. They're working wonders. They're going to find worthy people who take care of them. Like, all right, it's, it's going to be a little stretching, but I mean, that doesn't sound too bad. It's going to be a, a great short-term mission, but not so fast. Some people will believe, sure, but not all. And in the final verses of this opening section, we start seeing dark clouds form. It starts to get a little ominous about what's going to come. Because we learned some people will believe them and love them. Others will not. Others will reject them. And here's where we get the first hints. This is actually not going to be an easy mission trip. There may be risk involved, cost involved, and then the verses to follow, we learn what that might look like for really picturing their long-term mission. We're talking being arrested, beaten, persecuted, and even killed for Christ's sake. And so in the verses to follow, it starts getting real. But for now, though, just here, Jesus instructs them on whom to reject. As they enter the house of the worthy, they're to give, he says, a greeting and a blessing of peace. And this is not just a simple greeting of shalom, peace be upon you. Rather, he's talking about as a person has accepted the apostles and their message. They're, they're promised the blessing of peace with God. But not everyone will be worthy. Some will reject. And he says, you're to take back your blessing of peace. That does not mean this house received the blessing and they've now lost it. It's just a Semitic way of saying, leave. It's time to move on. Like John the Baptist, their message is repent, believe, be saved, because the judge is standing right at the door. And so like if they find someone and a person believes they're worthy, they, they, they gain a blessing of peace with God. But they encounter someone who rejects, they're unworthy. Well, all they get is that promise of judgment. And as for the apostles, when, when people reject them, they're not really rejecting them. They're rejecting the Lord whom they represent, at which point it's just says time to move on. Go to the next house, the next city. Furthermore, verse 14, whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Now you notice here how not receiving the apostles is synonymous with not heeding their words. That's what this is about. That's what makes someone unworthy. Make, what makes you worthy? Accepting the gospel. What makes you unworthy? Rejecting this message. This could be a single house that has rejected. This could be an entire city. In either case, as they depart, he says they're to shake the dust off their feet. This was a common Jewish practice back then. 
Whenever Jews were forced to travel through Gentile or Samaritan territory, upon returning to the land of Israel, they would take off their sandals and shake the dust off their feet. Just a little symbolic repudiation of pagan defilement. It signaled that, that the pagan lands they just walked through were unworthy. Not even their dust was worthy to enter the promised land, the holy land. And Jesus applies this practice, though, to these unworthy houses or cities. As these Jews declare themselves to be unworthy by their rejection and unbelief, well, then the apostles will symbolically declare them rejected under only the curse of God. And then he adds this to finish our passage, verse 15. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And Sodom and Gomorrah, you recall, were the epitome of unworthy cities. And that's, that's why they were judged, because none were found worthy in them. Everyone was immoral and unbelieving, and so they became objects of God's righteous wrath. But what Jesus is saying is on the day of eternal judgment, even those from Sodom will have it better than those who rejected the message of the apostles. How can this be? It's not because these Jews were living in, in worse immorality than those in Sodom. They weren't. But the Jews were guilty of being given the greatest revelation of God in the person and work of Jesus, physically present, yet finding it not enough. I mean, they had, they had the most light ever. They had the light of the world incarnate, yet they still chose the darkness. That is the greater sin, and for that, they've merited for themselves the greater judgment. That's what Jesus says, to whom much is given, much is required. You can see that already this commission, it's starting to get a little heavy. And it only gets more so in the words to follow. We'll have to save that for another time. For now, though, there's, there's a few final points we can tease out. A final few points of application here. And for one, I would be remiss if I didn't appeal to any here who might not know this Lord. You need to hear the testimony passed down by his apostles that this Jesus of whom they speak and write, he's the only Savior. He's the only one who died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins and rose from the dead to offer you new life. The only way you can have this, this promised blessing of peace with God is through his son Jesus. He's the only way, and your only hope is to repent of your sins and believe in him. Trust him. Follow him. You need to understand, if, if you're here today and that's you, this, this blessing, the same blessing of peace is held out to you, but the judge is still right at the door. And so repent and believe today. And for those who have, persist in sharing this message, scattering this seed. This historic first mission is over. It's not for us in its particulars, but we can still very much learn how we ought to conduct ourselves as witnesses. And from these last few points, we learned to you know, scatter some of that seed on every field. But you really should be seeking out fertile soil. Like these disciples, don't, don't linger when you encounter a hardened heart. Rather, take your seed elsewhere. This doesn't mean we cut off people who don't believe we will continue to labor along with our loved lost ones. But when they prove unworthy, 
when they, when they develop a heated rejection of the message and a scorn, even a hatred for the messengers, well, like Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, you have a, a situation where you ought not cast your pearls before swine. It's time to move on. There are those out there who are humble and poor in spirit and meek. That they're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You find those people, you invest all into those people while praying for God to shatter hardened hearts. It's still true that God's faithful workers will find opposition in the world. Everything Jesus says now and the remainder of this commission is all about that. He is preparing them and us for living as lights in a dark world. And so there's much more to come. But for now, like, like the 12, like R.C. Chapman and countless others, be moved to faithfulness. Whether you cross the ocean or cross the street, you need to know that the Lord Jesus, he is the real worthy one, and it is worth making his name known to those around you, whatever the cost. Be faithful in that. And then, who knows? But I pray there might even be some here this morning who have their own hearts stirred up to find or create their own short-term mission opportunity. Because as we've seen, God can do momentous things with just a few good, faithful, worthy workers ready to witness for his sake. I'll pray for that. Let's pray now. Our God who is in heaven, it is our prayer that you raise up more workers to send out into the field. We have good news to share, which we have received. That though this world was lost and, and sitting in darkness under your curse and wrath by your love, your great mercy with which you loved us. You sent this son, Jesus, the Savior into the world who was perfect, who, who did die on that cross for a reason, for our sins. All the deeds we've committed in darkness, he hung there for them. Yet he rose to new and everlasting life. And those who believe in him receive that new life. That's, that's many of us here this morning. We pray for any who have not received it, that you convict them, you show them their sin and the only way of escape refuge and joy is in this risen Savior. May they turn and believe in him. But as for us, we know we cannot keep this good news to ourselves. Whether we've been called as, as full-time heralds or, or part-time, we all have a, a commission to make disciples of the nations, to, to scatter the seed, to just be found faithful. And this is a good work to do. May we overcome any fear and just be found faithful. Give us a heart for the nations whether they're found across the street or across the ocean, a heart, a consuming desire to reach the lost for this world is perishing and the judge is at the door. So work in your people, short-term, long-term, just may we live lives of salt and light in the dead and dying, decaying world around us that it might be transformed. Work in us, may we be found faithful by your spirit. We give you all the glory for what we were just found and made worthy by our worthy Savior Christ. We give him the glory. Christ's name we pray. Amen.